1: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
2: Hello, I'm Tim Cross, the economist science correspondent, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. This week, we're doing a special edition of the programme to go along with our upcoming technology quarterly on oceans. The
0: stories coming up on the podcast are the future of ocean fish farming. It weighs about the same as the Eiffel Tower, it is about the same size and volume as St Peter's Church in Rome. The task of mapping the seafloor.
3: You know, throughout human history, we have not yet managed to make a good map of our own planet
1: and what to do with the problem of marine plastic pollution. Perhaps charities should focus more on improving waste collection systems in the East rather than badgering consumers in the West to use fewer disposable cups. But before we get to that, Hal, why don't you give us a sense of
2: what the report is about in general?
0: So the general theme that ties all of the chapters of this TQ together is that electronics, including sensors and robotics, have been getting much cheaper in the past decade and that this has fueled a kind of extension of technology into the ocean where it didn't used to be. In general, most of the things that we do in the ocean require humans to be on a ship doing something and that's really expensive. And so the report looks at how this is changing what we do in the ocean and that means things like deep sea mining, it means using robots to study the undersides of ice shelves as they slip into the Antarctic Sea and importantly to study the connection between the heat that's contained in the ocean and the weather systems that absorb that heat.
2: One of the lines in the TQ really grabbed me which as you said up until now the ocean's been mysterious and humans have had the sort of relationship to it that hunter gatherers had you know, with forests back before we had agriculture. It was just this big system that we didn't really understand and we did small things to it and took things from it but had no real idea of what was happening. And one of the senses I got from reading it is that this is changing because we're now getting this torrent of data that wasn't available before and the oceans are becoming much less mysterious than they were.
0: Yeah, it's changing very slowly. I think, you know humans civilized the land quite quickly because we come equipped with sensors and actuators that can do that eyes and hands and you know we can plow the land and we can we can build civilization whereas in the ocean it's much much harder and it's really only in the last 10 years that we have the kinds of technology that allow us to sort of really extend our attention into the ocean and to extend our will into the ocean it, it's difficult because Electronics and seawater don't mix. Humans cannot breathe underwater. So it's taken a very long time, but thanks to the smartphone boom, we are finally getting there.
2: Hal, the TQ covers lots of different kinds of technology, but one thing that really caught my eye was the piece on fish farming. And this is something that we've been doing for decades on a kind of small scale, but it's really, really ramping up now.
0: So fish farming typically is a fairly dull and scaled industry. We're talking sort of chain link fences underwater with dudes dumping buckets of chum into the water for other fish. and But it works. It works really well. And actually farmed fish production has overtaken beef as a protein source for the planet. And for a long time, it has been a dream of the industry to move some of this stuff offshore, where the currents are stronger, where the water is deeper and colder. This means that you have less problem with disease, less problem with fouling up inland waterways. The problem has always been that it's jolly expensive to have a bunch of humans walking around with buckets of fish feed three miles offshore. So the answer is automation. So the idea is to do away with the humans? As much as possible, yes. And this has just started. The first ever offshore fish farm is a thing called Ocean Farm One, and it can house about 1.5 million salmon.
2: And just to give an idea of scale, this thing is its absolutely enormous.
0: its It's the size of the Eiffel Tower? or Yeah, it weighs about the same as the Eiffel Tower. It is about the same size in volume as St. Peter's Church in Rome. And it is packed with sensors that allow you to do things like automate when the fish get fed. The feeding tubes come in at about 10 meters under the water, which is lower than sea lice can go, which is a big problem for uh, normal farmed fish. And so this is a prototype for something that this company wants to sort of expand.
2: The idea is eventually to have, what, dozens, hundreds of these things just floating miles offshore doing their thing by
0: themselves? I guess that is the long-term vision. The medium-term vision is for six of them that have been contracted from the Chinese shipbuilding company at a total cost of 300 million. It's a Norwegian company called Salmar, and it fits in with Norway's sort of national imperative to grow their fish farming more, but without the externalities that have come with it so far that tend to do things like, you know, not local ecosystems off balance. When you do it further out, to, further out at sea, they don't think that they're going to get those same problematic externalities.
2: Getting rid of humans and doing things automatically actually lets you do things that existing fish farms can't, right? In terms of you can, you can
0: gather data, you can look for interesting patterns, you can try and
2: optimize how your whole fish farm works.
0: Yeah, that's right. So they're taking all of the data that streams off those cameras and those sensors and building it into a machine learning model called SimSalma. And the idea is that once you learn how the fish move around underwater, how they respond to being fed at slightly different times of day. Uh, You can start to remove the humans that know how to feed fish and when to feed fish and just know from intuition and start doing all of that automatically and slowly take more and more people off the structure so that it's less expensive to house them out there. When I was talking to to Salmar about it, they didn't commit to saying they want a completely automated offshore salmon farm just floating around out there doing its own thing, but that's kind of the ultimate long-term vision for sure. Great, thanks and of course
2: it's not just fish farming you covered lots of other topics as well
0: yeah i also spoke to jotika vermani the head of an XPRIZE prize competition for seafloor mapping and she is running a competition between 19 different international teams to try and use drones to map the seafloor at much higher resolutions than we've ever done before Jo, Tika is on the line with us from California. So we are here to talk about ocean mapping. Now, tell us a little bit about where this idea came from and why it's important.
3: The so, mapping is a fundamental piece of understanding where we are. And uh, XPRIZE, we have the an ocean initiative. And the mission there is for a healthy, valued and understood ocean. And we realise that in order to make something healthy, you need to value it. And in order to value it, you need to understand it. And so having a mapping XPRIZE is really a fundamental core base of that whole process that uh, of improving our understanding in order to value the ocean, in order to make it healthy. So so that's why we're doing this particular competition. Um, and certainly you can find out more details at oceandiscovery.xprize.org. You know, throughout human history, we have not yet managed to make a good map of our own planet. So that's where this competition really stems from.
0: So what's the difference with what's happening at XPRIZE?
3: So we have designed this competition to remove the need for ships at sea. So all the entries will be deployed from the shore, whether it's a drone, so aerial, or on the sea surface, or even starting from the shore and immediately diving into the water.
0: So you don't need any humans involved on the water at all?
3: There will be no humans in the competition area when doing this mapping. And that's for the competition, which is scheduled to end at the end of this year and early 2019 timeframe. But moving on from there, that means that these technologies that emerge, we will have a slew of them that do not require humans in the competition or, or at sea.
0: But I mean, there aren't really very many humans in the ocean and for the most part, you know, the bits we're interested in are, are the surface and maybe not crashing into rocks and I think most most of that is pretty well taken care of. So I can completely understand the sort of fundamental scientific need to have a good map of everything. Um, but are there any kind of more practical reasons why you would want a high resolution map of the whole seabed of the entire ocean?
3: Um, so you, first of all, The deep ocean is considered to be the world's largest museum, we just have no access to it right now. So there are hundreds, if not thousands or millions of shipwrecks down there, which have yet to be discovered, which will show insight into our own human history. Um, You can look at medical cures, so there are a number of medical discoveries being made from the ocean realm as new creatures or compounds are discovered. So we still don't know yet everything that the ocean contains. And then beyond that, when a ship goes down or a plane goes down, we don't know where where it goes and where to look. So when they were looking for the Malaysian Airlines, they actually, you know, as you know, did not find the aircraft, but they found two new volcanoes, one of which is larger than Mount Vesuvius. So this really highlights how poorly we know what's out there and what and what and how it could benefit us.
0: And and the the, the, the nine teams that are going on to, to do this next step of the competition, what are they gonna to have to do?
3: So the round two, which is the final round of the Shell Ocean Discovery X Prize, is quite an audacious challenge for the nine teams. They will have to deploy their competition entry <clears throat> down to four thousand meter depth and they will have to map at least 250 square kilometers in uh, 24 hours but at a very high resolution so at five meter or higher resolution so to give you uh, some perspective like deeper than the grand canyon <laughs> in fact so
0: what, what resolution is most of the ocean at now just to compare five meter resolution to whatever we have at the moment
3: so most of the ocean actually now the seafloor is is between one and five-kilometer resolution. We are looking at these entries making maps at five-meter resolution, which is a huge leap forward. The current estimate on time it would take to map the seafloor with the technology that we have today is around 600 years.
0: To be clear, that's ships ships and sensors towing stuff.
3: Yes, ships ships towing the underwater sensors and equipment that would map the seafloor. So what we're looking at is pulling that timeline forward greatly to around 2030.
0: Gosh, so Google Maps for the seafloor is going to become a reality, you know, potentially within 15, 20 years.
3: Yes, Google Maps for the seafloor, but a very high resolution Google Maps.
0: Well, great. Jotika Kevramani. thank you very much for coming on the show. Finally, we've looked at
2: putting new technologies into the sea, but what can we do about taking an old invention out? Specifically, plastic. Joining us in the studio is Jan Piotrowski, the economist environment correspondent, who wrote a report on exactly this subject for last week's paper. Yeah, and
1: exactly how big a problem is this? Well, in absolute terms, it sounds pretty terrifying. About 10 million tons of plastic, roughly, are thought to make it into the oceans from land every year. Exactly how much is already there is hard to say, but because plastic doesn't decompose into its chemical constituents, which is what makes it so durable and useful. So what kind of form does this trash take in the ocean? It's mostly individual pieces of plastic that are floating around, mostly quite dispersed, so it's not you won't see a big raft of, of plastic onto which you could climb. So it's really a bottle here, a piece of foil there, but those pieces that you can see are not the biggest problem, or at least they're not perceived as the biggest problem. What worries a lot of people is when these plastics actually break apart into tiny microscopic pieces which can subsequently be consumed by creatures which subsequently end up on people's tables and therefore make it into the human food chain.
2: And is this, do you think, one of those sort of happy environmental stories where the solution is economic growth and development? Because one of the things that struck me from your briefing is this this statistic that of the 10 rivers in the world that discharge the most plastic to the ocean, I think eight of them you said were in Asia and two are in Africa. Um, so it's it's not actually a problem of the sort of decadent industrialized West so much as it is of developing countries where there just isn't really a, a system in place to recycle these things or pick them up or stop them getting into the sea in the first place.
1: That's right. I mean, the biggest furore over plastics can certainly be heard in the West, in Europe. And it, and it's a very photogenic problem because it's, it's very tangible. People see it and therefore people care about it. But the West has extremely efficient uh, waste collection systems. And that's certainly not the case in, much of the developing world. As you said, 10 rivers are responsible for discharging something like 80 to 90 percent of all plastic litter, and none of them are in the West.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but one of the things I found when reporting the oceans piece was that there's really no way to get this stuff out of the ocean once it's in there. So it does seem to me, after reading your piece and after doing the reporting for my own, that the only way to deal with this is by addressing the problem on land and by, and by fixing it before it gets into the ocean in the first place.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that seems to be the the obvious and, and you know, in a, in a sense, relatively straightforward way out of the problem. And the countries which are, are the biggest plastic polluters, they will want to improve their waste management systems as they grow richer, because managing waste is something that will have other advantageous consequences for, for their citizens. And as they grow richer, they will inevitably improve their waste management. And perhaps charities should focus more on improving waste collection systems in the East rather than badgering consumers in the West to use fewer disposable cups. Well, thanks for joining
2: us, Jan. And uh, thanks too, Hal. Thank you, Tim. And that's all for this week's edition of Babbage. If you've got any thoughts, please send them to us in an email at radio@economist.com Or you can tweet them to us at economist radio. Either way, don't forget to pick up the latest issue of the paper itself. You can find us online at economist.com.